Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Okay, hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Terrorism and Organised Crime. I'm your host, Mark Locks from Brisbane in Australia. And today we are going to be talking to Jeffrey Simon about his new book, Lone Wolf Terrorism, Understanding the Growing Threat. Hi, Jeffrey, how are you? Fine, hello. I, it, how's the weather over there in the northeast? Are you in the northeast? No, I'm in sunny Southern California, so oh, we can't right, complain okay. too much about the weather here. No, no, not at all. No, last person I spoke to was in New England, and it was not the nicest weather at all. Sounds cold, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we have a very timely show today. This We've been talking about having this interview for a few weeks and had no idea, obviously, about the Boston bombing, but it uh, will be very relevant to the conversation we're going to have right now. Absolutely. Yep. So how about we start with just a bit of background about yourself? You know, what was your career path and how you ended up writing this book and have you written any other books? Sure, sure. Uh, in terms of like what I do now is, um, you know, I've written this book, Lone Wolf Terrorism, Understanding the Growing Threat, and I'm a visiting lecturer in the Department of Political Science at UCLA, and I also have my own consulting firm, which is called Political Risk Assessment Company. Now, the way... I came into terrorism is really interesting. I did write a book earlier. It was in the late 80s, early 90s. It got published in 1994. It was called The Terrorist Trap. Now, in that book, I kind of looked at America's experience with terrorism. And what was interesting is as I was doing the research for the book, I discovered that one of my classmates from a high school in Brooklyn, New York, was a hostage in one of the most spectacular hijackings in terrorism history. In September of 1970, the Popular Front for the Pal- Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine hijacked four planes on the same day, and that feat never was duplicated until the Al Qaeda attacks of 9/11. Mm. My classmate was one of the hostages on the pl- on the plane. She was let- kept in Jordan for several weeks and then eventually released. So when I was writing my book, I figured, okay, this is something I sh- somebody I should interview. It's going to be an interesting story. And then I kept digging further, and I found out another of my high school classmates had an experience with terrorism, but her experience was in becoming a terrorist. She oh. joined the Weather Underground, oh, yes. and and she participated in an armed robbery, and, and a couple of people were killed, and she's currently serving uh, 75 years to life sentence in, uh, in an upstate New York prison. So I think, wow, this is another story you know, I, begin, I could be, begin that book with. Then I looked at the high school yearbook, and I still have that, and I was shocked to see all three of us, the terrorist, the hostage, and myself, were together in a group picture for the Honor Society. <laughs> and, and I did that, I told that story once on a, uh, on a live uh, interview show, and somebody called in and wanted to know what the name of my uh, high school, uh, Terra High. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but the way I became, I went to uh, UC Berkeley as an undergrad, and I was there in the late 1960s, 
and actually, uh, my freshman year was in 1967, and Theodore Kaczynski, the Unabomber, was an assistant professor of mathematics at that wow. time. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, I never took a class from him, because it would have been a great story to tell. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, I went to graduate school in Indiana and to University of Southern California, worked at the Rand Corporation, and it was about the early 1980s that I became more focused on terrorism. I was doing crisis forecasting, political violence, and then the more you write about and study terrorism, it sort of becomes your niche. And the way I actually got into this book, The Lone Wolf Terrorism, is that, oh, about 10 years ago, I did a case study of a lone wolf in Los Angeles. His name was Maureen Kabekovich, and he became known as the Alphabet Bomber. Mm. And he was a paranoid schizophrenic, but very smart in dealing with the media. He set off a bomb at Los Angeles International Airport. It killed several people. And he said that he's a leader of a group called Aliens of America. And his first bomb is with the letter A. The next bomb is going to be L. And until I spell the name of our group, out in blood, we're going to have more terrorism. So the entire city of L.A. was in incredible fear. He then said, well, the L-bomb is in a locker at a bus station, and I'm letting you, you know, tell you where it is because my cause is getting publicity, and I'm going to temporarily suspend it. I'm going to resume it in a few more days. His cause was irrational. He wanted all immigration, uh, naturalization, and sex laws declared unconstitutional, and then to fascism, communism, you know, capitalism. It was definitely you know, uh, off, you know, to a certain, um, you know, mindset. But what it convinced me was that a single terrorist can have the same effect on a society and government and law enforcement that more organized groups, powerful groups, can have. So I decided to look more into this issue at some point, and then it was only about a couple of years ago that I really delved into it and started writing The Lone Wolf Terrorism, Understanding the Growing Threat. Right, right. And I, as I said to you, the timeliness is quite amazing, but um, I have taught uh, subjects on terrorism before, and lone wolf terrorism is something that seems to get left out. So it's actually really good, I think, that there's finally a book concentrating specifically on that. There's been books on individuals, but never one covering the whole um, gamut of the issue that I've seen anyhow. Right. And there's been a lot of case studies of one or two here and there or something like that. But I, I wanted to try to look at the whole picture and, you know, from an international perspective, not just, you know, American lone wolves, lone wolves everywhere, and try to get at, you know, what are these characteristics? Is there possibly a profile? Is there possibly strategies you can do? Um, and all along the way, as I'm sure we'll get into, you know, during the interview, I came up with some surprise findings, things that, you know, I wasn't prepared for. And that's always the beauty of doing research and writing a book you learn yourself yeah no well i certainly learned a hell of a lot reading it and i thought i knew a lot oh. about this topic so well thank done you. <laughs> thank um, you thank you very much how about we start then with just for everyone's benefit a definition your definition of lone wolf terrorism because i have to say that there's some people who say that individuals can't be terrorists the terrorists have to be organizations right now i i see a lone wolf as a individual Working alone, but I also stretch the definitions, and sometimes we can consider a lone wolf if they have minimal assistance, maybe from one other person. But most of the time, it's an individual working alone with a political, a social, a religious objective, but 
even if they don't have that objective, at times it can have the same effect on government and society as if they did. So through a certain act of violence, certain reactions, you know, come come into play. Uh, there's certain questions of security, so that the lone wolf should be thought of as sort of the individual as opposed to the group. And most definition of terrorism had required it to be two or more individuals, so they basically were ignored until recently. Yeah, yeah, and they definitely were having a similar effect as some of the people will talk about here, not just um, Theodore Kaczynski, but also, I can't remember the guy's name, who was sending the um, anthrax through the mail. Oh, Bruce Ivins. Yes. He was, uh, well, no, that, that case, he had supported Ivins in terms of people saying, well, you know, he committed suicide before he did it. But the circumstantial evidence against him was, was so strong that in my book, I basically say, uh, I, I really um, do believe he was the anthrax letter sender. Yep. So how about we run through some of them then uh, over time so we can go back to a couple of the uh, presidential assassins and work our way up and we might even discuss some of the women involved as well. Sure. So who do you want to start with? Do you want to go back to the assassination of McKinley or... Yeah, well, in, in terms of the the assassination of McKinley, it was a uh, Leon Zog, Zogos. You know, it's hard to um, yes. pronounce the name. <laughs> That's it why I was letting it. you do it. I wasn't going to <laughs> yeah. volunteer. Yeah, for your listeners, it was C Z O L G O S Z, and um, you know, he was. Um, it, it stated that he was a disappointed uh, office seeker and. Um, things along those lines, but he, he basically, he, he also had, um, uh, well, actually, no, in, in his case, it was certain connections perhaps with, with the um, anarchist. Um, uh, I actually was thinking of an earlier case of a Charles Guiteau, who assassinated another president, Garfield. He was sort of the disappointed you know, office seeker. But, but Longos basically um, tried to approach the anarchist groups, and they kind of distanced themselves from him, which is an interesting lesson, because a lot of lone wolves sometimes will approach a group initially, and the groups may say, see them as too unstable and really want you know, no, no part of it. But um, he just um, decided that uh, he was going to um, kill, you know, McKinley, and um, it kind of, you know, it shocked the nation at that time. Yeah, yep. But it was all, as you say, literally a lone wolf operation. There was no supporting organization. Oh, none at all. None at yeah. all. And in fact, so, some observers would say, well, you know, an act of assassination of, of a leader is not an act of terrorism. You know, it's, uh, it becomes back again, you know, to that definition because there's always been, mm. you know, assassins. But, you know, I, I see it as an act of terrorism because, you know, it creates, uh, it creates turmoil in governments. You know, you have a new leader. It creates certain fear, you know. And it also leads to various conspiracy theories. But, no, he worked totally, yeah. totally alone. Well, there were certainly a lot of anarchist terrorists who believed assassinating leaders was fundamentally an act of terrorism. They call it propaganda by deed, so they assassinated. Was it Alexander II. Um, oh. So I, I think we're on pretty safe ground saying that shooting the leader of a country is an act of terrorism, too. Oh, oh absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, in the, in the anarchists, in the United States, there was a group called the Gallianists, and their leader was Luigi Galliani, and he inspired a lot of followers. And this group was responsible for 30 letter bombs uh, in about 1919, and then they were also responsible for placing nine bombs. But then the group was basically uh, defeated. Uh, Galliani was deported. There was nobody left except for one or two, and a single lone wolf is suspected of 
bringing a horse and wagon to Wall Street, setting off the bomb and killing uh, over 30 people. This was known as the 1920 Wall Street bombing. Mm. And it's really like the first vehicle bombing in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, you do cover a lot of people from different countries, too. I mean, as you said at the beginning, this isn't just a U.S. Centric book, so no, you want to discuss no. one of the ones from say um, Europe. Yeah, well, the case of Anders Breivik, who massacred all those um, ch- all those teenagers on the island in Norway. Hmm. Uh, he was a anti-Islamic lone wolf. Um, what's interesting in his case is that he wasn't targeting you know Islamic individuals. He was targeting the uh, political process. He blamed the politicians for what he called the Islamization and uh, you know colonization of, of Europe. So he basically wanted to take out uh, politicians, all those associated with the ruling party. But his plan was, and this is one of the few cases, but we had a couple where it was almost a dual attack by a lone wolf. He first sets off a bomb in, in uh, downtown Oslo. And then he travels to the island to tell the, the campers there, well, I'm here to protect you from what happened in Oslo, and that diverted the police, and then he started to, you know, massacre the, these kids. And, you know, we've had cases where there was a Unabomber in Italy who was sending um, different bombs around. England's had a number of uh, lone wolf attacks in the 1990s. There was a nail bomb attack. And it, it, it's been a uh, really a worldwide phenomenon. That's right. So it, it really isn't even a culturally specific thing. No, not at all. Not at all. And it, and that also goes back to the profile question. You know, everybody usually wants to know, okay, so what is the profile of a lone wolf? But mm. there really isn't a profile because they cut across all parts of the political social, religious spectrum. We have, as I mentioned here, anti-Islamic lone wolves. We've had, you know, Islamic lone wolves. Um, in the United States, uh, an individual is, is believed to have been responsible. He's the accused uh, uh, shooter at Fort Hood, Texas. Yes. And um, then we've had white supremacists as lone wolves. But we've also had an interesting case in uh, Britain where a young woman who showed no signs of radicalization at all suddenly dropped out of King of College. She was attending King's College and attempted to assassinate a British prime, a British member of Parliament who had supported the war in Iraq. And when she was arrested, the police could not believe there was no, you know, email she exchanged with anybody. She hadn't talked to anybody. None of her friends saw any radicalization. What she simply did was for about nine months before the attempt assassination was listened to over a hundred sermons from Anwar al-Awlaki, who was the American-born Islamic cleric living in Yemen at the time, who eventually was killed in a drone attack. So in these sermons, you know, al is calling for, you know, jihad, for killing Westerners and things along the line, and that is what radicalized her. So, you know, the radicalization process is being uh, definitely uh, supported through Internet activity, but lone wolves have come in all, you know, shapes, sizes, religions, and ages. And sexes. Both sexes that's, as well. Yeah, oh, that's right. Now, the sexist thing is another surprising finding I found because I thought, as I went through this, that I was going to find a lot of female lone wolves. The reason is that 
you know, women have been very active, as you know, in, in terrorist groups throughout history. The anarchists had women, you know, as major uh, as major players. The Badamanov gang, uh, one of the leaders, was, was a woman. Mm. The secular terrorist groups have always used women. The religious groups, such as Al Qaeda and others, at first had certain rules against using women in attacks, but then changed because they saw the you know effect that it, that it can have. So I thought for sure. There'd be women on wolves, but I couldn't find that many. Uh, there was another case here in America that we called uh, Jihad Jane. You know, she went on YouTube and Facebook trying to uh, form her own cell to uh, travel around the world to, you know, commit terrorism in the name, you know, of the Islamic cause. And she actually went to uh, Europe to attempt to assassinate the illustrator who had made a derogatory um, illustration of the Prophet Muhammad, which a few years ago, you know, created a lot of um, turmoil, you know, around the world. So these were really the only two significant female lone wolves that, that have been active anywhere. And so I try to figure out how do you answer why they weren't there, because if they're active in groups, why are they not doing it by themselves? So I started to go through the um, sociological and psychological literature on some of the differences between men and women, and one of the things that came out was that women tend to value social interactions and human connections higher than do men. And a, and a lone wolf attack is a totally isolated attack. You're going out on your own. Uh, and even if a terrorist group may recruit a woman and give her a you know suicide vest and say, go do this now, she feels she's part of this group at least, you know, even yeah. if it's for the day. But to make a decision, I'm going to do this all by myself, means you have to, you know, do those kinds of, um, you know, non-social, non-interaction type of things. And with the women placing these social values higher than men, that was one possible explanation. The other was that um, paranoid schizophrenia and antisocial behavior apparently was less prevalent you know, in studies you know, of, of women than in men, and there have been a number of lone wolves who've suffered from that. So I, I really just try to, you know, scratch the surface of some of these reasons and you're know, trying to come up with uh, why you know we wouldn't find them when we find them in the groups yeah um well why don't we i know you're actually saying there's no individual profile but let's discuss the differences between them we've got some individuals who are inspired by what other people are saying such as the the woman in england but then you've got the unabomber ted kaczynski who seems to develop his entirely his own persona and and, and uh, ideology, I suppose, to support uh, what he does. Right, Ab- absolutely. And Kaczynski is really interesting because he <clears throat> basically, you know, deteriorated into paranoid schizophrenia as the years went on, and he left Berkeley, left a great job, and just retreated, you know, into the uh, into the countryside. Then, as he set these bombs off. Sent, sent them across the country, he was doing it, although nobody knew at the time, it wasn't until later on to find out who, even the identity of who, who this person was, to protest what he called the industrial, you know, technological society. Now, what's interesting is he was finally caught when his brother recognized the writing style in a manifesto that was published in the Washington Post. Kaczynski had said, you know, Unless you publish my manifesto, I'm going to do more bombs. And the uh, law enforcement authority said, you know, we've really got nothing to lose. 
by allowing him to publish the manifesto. <clears throat> you know, if there are copycat incidents afterwards, we'll have to deal with it. But the potential, because they had no clues at all as who this guy was, to find out, you know, more clues was really, you know, something they needed to do. And it's also, there was a theory that he made these demands in 1995, a couple of months after the Oklahoma City bombing. And one of the theories was that he was jealous of all the attention that Timothy McVeigh was getting for the Oklahoma City bombing. Mm -hmm. So once the manifesto was published, his brother David recognized the writing style and said, wow, you know, this could be my brother. And he had the tough choice, but he felt, you know, I got to turn, you know, I have to let the authorities know that. But I argue in my book that I really think had the Internet been around and more prevalent at that time when Kaczynski first started, his attacks. That was in the late 1970s. He couldn't resist posting stuff on the internet. You know, even though he's against technology, he would have said, "I'm doing this for this and that." And his brother would have probably recognized it then, so some lives would be saved. You know, and that. And, and actually, in my book, I call the internet sort of a double-edged sword because it's so vital to the lone wolves. I mean, they're getting information on how to make homemade bombs. They're learning about things going on around the world. Uh, they can learn about terrorist incidents and try to avoid mistakes that other groups did. They get radicalized through chat rooms, through you know the terrorist ideology. But they also, I found out, love to talk a lot, and they talk through the Internet, They're through their emails, through posting of um, blogs and manifestos. And in fact, we had a couple of incidents, the one in Norway, Breivik, who you know, massacred those uh, kids, he posted his manifesto right before he went on his attack. And he talked about, you know, how violence was necessary. The same thing with an individual in the U.S. who flew a plane into an IRS building, the Internal Revenue Service, and he, on his blog, he said, violence sometimes is the only answer. And then he got in the plane, you know, crashed into the building. So somehow the, the, the idea that the lone wolves are totally isolated is really wrong because the Internet has really kind of become the game changer. It helps them but it could also lead to the downfall. Right. Well, that might be a good time to discuss the Boston bombings then because there certainly seems to be some evidence of the the elder brother, at least, who was um, participating on the Internet. I don't know how much he was discussing himself, but he was certainly using the Internet as some form of inspiration. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, and the, and the question is, you know, how do you identify those who are just, you know, blogging and, and just using rhetoric, you know, from those who are sort of, you know, become true believers and, and things along those lines. Oh, actually, sorry, I'll just interrupt slightly because we need to clarify. We actually did, in the previous uh, pre-interview, we were discussing the Boston bombing and noting that there were two people, but they, as brothers, had a lot of similarities for lone wolves. Yeah, yes, exactly. You know, if it turns out that there really was not any significant or any at all outside assistance to these brothers, even though it's more than one individual, we can almost consider them, you know, lone wolf brother, you know, kind yeah. of terrorists. And and the fact that they were brothers probably also uh, aided them in terms of their communications with each other. You know, they didn't have to perhaps, you know, send emails to each other. They could just, you know, hang out and talk and make, you know, make their plot. But until it comes out, you know, who thought up the plan, I mean, it's looking like probably the older brother was sort of the dominant figure because he was seven years older and there was no father figure. The father was in uh, in Russia. I think they were alienated from an uncle. So it could be that the 19-year-old the was following all the guidance and everything from the 26-year-old. But that's going to come out, you know, in, in mm -hmm. the days ahead. 
but um, no, definitely it fits the profile because uh, they, they, they're able to perpetrate this attack, you know, with little warning, although there, there's now going to be some investigations as to how much did the FBI know about the, the brother, because they didn't invest, they investigated him, and they yeah. knew he had gone to Russia, but apparently when he came back, it's debatable, was he questioned again or not? And there's also a fine line, you can't follow somebody and continue to question them if nothing turns up. You know, if it turns out that there really wasn't anything, you know, at that point. But from a strategic standpoint, the Boston bombings was really advantageous for the terrorists because what these two Lone Wolf brothers realized was that there'd be little or no security at the finish line. In other words, there wasn't going to be uh, security checkpoints because everybody was having backpacks and bags. The runners who finished races were then going to their gear and they're standing, you know, around. And so they knew they would be able to get there without being detected. And the fact that they didn't commit a suicide attack meant that they were so confident that they could just drop the bombs and walk away and that they also had more explosives at home and were going to launch more attacks. And it also shows in terms of what occurred after the event when the uh, younger suspect was on the run, the entire city of Boston was shut down you know, for about a day. There was a search for the, the remaining terrorist suspect. And that also demonstrates you know, the power of terrorism, how a single individual can have this incredible effect, not just on a city, but on a country. Yeah, well... Um it's interesting too the the difference. I'm thinking while you were talking about that, I was thinking of um, the Oklahoma bombing and the fact that the bombs used in uh, Boston weren't that large. They were devastating still for the people who were there, but there doesn't seem to be all that much restraint on the size of an attack that an individual can carry out as well. Because the Oklahoma bombing was certainly uh, a major attack. Oh, a- absolutely. Um, you know, in, in a course when I, I teach on, on terrorism. I always ask the students, when you hear about Oklahoma City bombing, and a lot of them become you know, quite young now, so they don't, they were, they, they were young at that time, so they That's don't right. recall that, but when, when it was still fresh in some of the other students' minds, how did the media describe Oklahoma City bombing the U.S.? And normally, you know, the answer is that the worst terrorist attack on U.S. soil. I say, what makes it the worst terrorist attack? And normally, the the uh, the definition of the worst or the you know unofficial definition is the number of casualties. Mm. Yet, what happened here in Boston? There were very few casualties. You know, in terms of there were three casualties and a lot of injuries. But it sort of becomes you know a symbolic effect. So it didn't really matter how powerful the you know the, the bomb was. You know, it still was able to kill you know three people and cause all that injuries. But I don't think it would have been any different had 200 people died, it would have been tragic, or the, the three people died. It was that terrorists were able to penetrate, you know, sporting event, set it off, create all this fear, confusion, and anxiety in the country, and it also demonstrates the vulnerability of soft targets, you know, civilians, individuals, you know, not having to go through a hardened target such as a building or an embassy or things like that. Yeah, and it had a massive effect around the world. I don't know how much appeared on the American news, but certainly the London Marathon had heightened security, and there was a lot of fear there. There's been issues in Australia with events that are coming up here where people have become, um, well, they've, they've been intimidated by the bombing, I suppose. So even yeah, yeah. though it was a small thing, it certainly has an international um, ripple-on effect. 
Yeah, oh, I mean, well, this wasn't a small thing in terms of what happened, but you're right in terms of the bomb. You know, the bomb yes, from the pressure cooker. Yeah, right, right yeah. To, a, to a small bomb. But what's interesting is that prior to this, um, you know, basically, most sporting events have been really terrorist-free. Uh, we take the Olympics. You know, you had an Olympics. China yep. had one. Russia, we, we had, we had you know, one here. The 1972 Munich massacre was the first time terrorists struck in the Olympics, and nobody was ready. No security. All they had to do was, you know, climb a fence, storm the Israeli dormitory, take the hostages, and this whole drama and tragedy played out behind, you know, in front of the whole world. Everybody thought, okay, this is now the next wave. You know, terrorists are always going to strike at Olympics. So every time you have Olympics, uh, as you know, in Australia, there's yeah. always a question of, of terrorist fears. Well. Every Olympics since Munich were terrorist-free. The one here in Atlanta in 1996, there was a bombing, but that bombing was basically at a non-Olympic venue. It was at a, a rock concert. So the lone wolf who did it, Eric Rudolph, just had to leave his backpack like these, the, the Boston Bombers did, you know, near a soundstage and, and just walk away. There wasn't anybody checked, you know, as they walked in. He couldn't have done that, you know, during a, a venue where you had to get through the gates, you know, and watch, watch a track meet. So what's going to happen now is basically, you know, when you could put security in a, you know, in a closed area for a certain amount of time, you can be very successful. The problem is going to be there's so many open sporting events that you don't want to make it that uncomfortable for people. But we may have to rethink the security to some point and figure out how can we, you know, check for people, you know, maybe carrying explosives uh, and not just let them, you know, roam free uh, into, you know, a golf tournament or a soccer mm. match that's outdoors that, you know, there's no security or whatever. No, that's right. Well, we have the G20 meeting straight across the river from my campus I'm sitting in right now at the end of this year, and the, they're doing practices already um, for anti-terrorism practices. And for that reason, as you say, it's unlikely that something would happen there. So it's about right. availability, I suppose, and the ease of getting to a target. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, 9-11, 9-11 is famous now, but 9-11 was not a significant date until you know, Al-Qaeda struck, and there wasn't anything significant about that date. You know, terrorists, you know, want to be successful. So, you know, they try to catch you by surprise. Now, if they can penetrate a large event, you know, for them, they feel so much, you know, the better. But, you know, we're living in the 24-7 cycle of news, so a massive attack is going to get coverage no matter what time of day, night, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, we might spend some time now actually moving on to um, the chapters where you're dealing with how you respond to lone wolf terrorists. Um, you've got a few different things you talk about, the strategies for dealing with them, uh, lessons learned of previous attacks as well. So uh, do you want to start talking about that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think in terms of the strategies, I, I try to look at some of the you know preventive and responsive strategies because the Perception is because the terrorist is working by himself or herself, there's really nothing you can do, you know, and I, and I argue that there really is. You know, one definitely is you, got, you keep trying to improve your detection devices, you know, the detection devices and post offices and things along that line. We just had a case here in the U.S. where an individual sent ricin letters to a senator and to President Obama. These were intercepted, you know, through the you know, mechanism that catches these things, you know, through the postal detection systems. Uh, I strongly believe... Again, the balance with civil liberties, but we need the expansion of the 
closed camera uh, you know, television, the CCTV cameras, because we've seen in Boston how effective that was for catching them after it occurred. But mm. we have to try to learn the technology on how this can be used or improved to try to see it before it happens. And some of the technology with the CCTV cameras, it becomes really futuristic, and, and it combines with biometrics, and that would be can you get images of what's called like gait analysis, the way somebody is walking, does that indicate they may be carrying a bomb? And if, if that can be measurable, you know, and that you're able to tell, you know, this image, that's not a, um, you know, just a heavy tennis racket or, or whatever in the bag, but that, that's a bomb or so, then you get, you know, immediate notification from the real-time monitoring, translated to law enforcement, you know, try to speed up that process to prevent the kind of attack. You know, so there, there are certain ways along that line, and, and definitely in terms of the um, the internet activity, you know, monitoring internet activity without you know violating people's privacy, and you know, still maintaining the civil liberties. But you know, a lot of lone wolves give themselves away through that activity, and um, you know, definitely public awareness. You know, here in the U.S., if we didn't have a major attack for some time. And there was a sense of complacency among the public. I mean, nobody would have paid attention to an unattended backpack at a coffee shop or anywhere. And now they will. So in a way, you know, we're getting a little back to the role of the public to report suspicious packages, you know, and things like that. So there are a number of steps that we have to continue to strive for and try to work to be able to prevent, you know, possible lone wolf activity and look for some early warning signs. You know, are individuals, you know, exp- uh, exhibiting certain erratic behavior that's just not behavior that makes them sort of odd or unique, but could be potentially dangerous. Uh, a couple of our lone wolves here uh, did that. Um, Bruce Ivins, who sent the anthrax letters, uh, did a number of things that were alarming to his co-workers uh, at Fort Detrick, and the same thing with his uh, major, Nidal Hassan, who was the alleged shooter, you know, at uh, Fort Hood, Texas. And then, after an attack has occurred, you have to try to come up with strategies to apprehend the lone wolf. This is if they weren't caught at the scene or, or it wasn't a suicide mission. One of the things that helps, of course, is forensic sciences, you know, all the evidence of DNA analysis and, again, the biometrics and also psychological profiles of, you know, what kind of attack it was, are there messages that were left. But very critical is to try to entice a lone wolf after an attack to communicate with the authorities in any way whatsoever. Uh, if you know, you, if they want to send another threat, you know, let them send that threat, and maybe in the message that they're sending, you get a clue, or let them try to explain their cause. Uh, there was a case of a mad bomber in New York decades ago. He was eventually caught when he sent letters to um, a newspaper, and he eventually talked about a disability claim against a utility company, and that allowed the authorities to identify who he was. Uh, the, the Unabomber, through the communications with the manifesto, and um, you know things like that. So always enticing them to communicate is, is a critical you know, strategy. Hmm. Do we have any uni- um, sorry, lone wolf um, terrorists who don't communicate, who don't have something to say, or is, or is that something that is fairly common between them all that they actually no, have? There, a- there, are some, 
Yeah, no, there's some that disappear. That, that's the problem. You know, some will, you, you may not hear from them. For example, Eric Rudolph, who was a lone wolf um, who set off the bomb at the 1996 Olympics, his big issue was abortion. You know, he's an anti-abortion militant. But all that time on the run, he, he was not communicating. So there's, there's an example. And he was just discovered by, by luck. Uh, there, you know, a rookie policeman found him sort of in, in a behind a convenience store once and was able to um, arrest him. And then through the arrest, they realized and fingerprints and everything, this was the bomber. So, yeah, no, it's not perfect. But mm. the, the prevailing view is that you just can't do anything with the lone wolves because as we combat terrorism by groups and states, sponsors, you have all kinds of policies, you know, diplomatic, military, uh, economic sanctions, you know, things along those lines, and obviously don't, don't apply for a lone wolf. But for, for some of them, we may be able to weed them out, but definitely some are going to be able to get away with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd be a resource-intensive um, job, too, wouldn't it? I mean, you'd need a lot of people looking at individuals to really have full coverage of potential lone wolves. Well, yes and no. I mean, definitely in terms of manually, but, you know, God, how do we protect where technology is going, you know, in yeah. terms of speed of databases and computers? But, yeah, you can get a lot of false positives. So it is a it's a slippery slope. It is kind of kind of tricky, um, will be to a certain extent labor intensive. But, uh, you know, I, I definitely think there, there are some of these strategies that, you know, may at least help, you know, reduce, you know, the probability of these lone wolves, you know, to be successful. And also, mm. mentioned the book, we have to be aware of the lulls in an attack. So if a lone wolf strikes and then nothing happens for a year, two years, five years, we can't assume that even though we didn't apprehend this lone wolf, you know, he or she isn't going to strike again. Because the Unabomber sometimes went several years between attacks and so too had some other, you know, lone wolves. Yeah. Yep. So... I suppose the big question then is, should we, and this is a very unfair question to give to anybody, but should we be spending um, more time trying to find the lone wolves because they are so hard to detect and have a higher possibility of getting through than actually watching the larger organizations? You know, I, we have to do both. I mean, there's no question. You know, I, I don't think we, we neglect the, the larger organizations, the cells that can, you know, emanate from them. But, you know, I guess there's a balance of resources, you know, to definitely, you know, put more resources into trying to figure, you know, how can we get a handle on this lone wolf and to be prepared for that and basically, you know, not turn the blind eye and say, you know, well, you know, maybe we're turning a quarter corner against Al-Qaeda and we're going to still do more certain strategies to deal with them and, and other kinds of, whether it be Islamic militant groups or right-wing, you know, neo-Nazi groups or, or whatever, but that also focus on the individual terrorist and the process on how they can become radicalized without being recruited physically by a group. Yeah, yep. So um, we've been talking about how the Internet has been playing a part recently and how it could have even played a part in the past as well. What do you think's coming up um, that might also play a part in both how lone wolves can be inspired, but also maybe even how they carry out their attacks? Well, well definitely, um, I think the Internet's going to continue to play a role. But I call what's happening now sort of a fifth wave of global terrorism. And 
terrorism pioneers. Oh, we might just ex- sorry, we just might explain the other four ways for those. Yeah, yes, we did. Yes, absolutely. Studies. Yeah, David Rappaport, pioneering um, terrorism uh, scholar, identified four waves of modern terrorism, which he he st- stated started in the 1880s, and it's basically a, a wave is about 20 is about 40 years of a certain type of terrorism motivated by a certain movement or inspired by a cause. The first wave from the 1880s to the 1920s, he labeled the anarchist wave. Then from the 1920s to the 1960s was the anti-colonial wave. Then from the 1960s to the end of the 20th, to the end of the 20th century, the, um, the new left wave. And then overlapping with that wave becoming around the 1980s was what he called the religious wave. And because under his theory, these waves come in generations, you know, the next generation goes into something different, that, you know, this religious wave may begin to wane out by the year 2020. And I argue in the book that Basically, I think what we're seeing now is the emergence of what I call a technological wave, that it doesn't have to be a movement, doesn't have to be a cause. The technology is affecting everybody in so many different ways, from governments combating terrorism, from groups using it, and that this Internet influence and also the ability, even without the Internet, for individuals to become technologically sophisticated, get hold of technological weapons, is going to increase, and, and that could be a major threat. And I I also see the potential for lone wolf attacks with weapons of mass destruction, most likely biological agents because those can be um, manufactured, attained. The question is, how do they learn how to disperse these agents for maximum effect? But what separates the lone wolves from various groups is that you know, they don't have any group decision-making process to stifle their creativity. There, some group may say, well, no, if, we, if we're going to think about a bio-terrorist attack, that may create a crackdown on our group. It may cause alienation among our own supporters. But a lone wolf, if they want to do it, they just go ahead and do it. So I, I think that is something that's, you know, going to be, uh, need to be watched and try to prepare against, not just al-Qaeda groups or others using these weapons, but a lone wolf, and even if it's a crude bioweapon or a crude chemical weapon or even a crude nuke, yeah, the amount of fear and panic it would cause would be tremendous. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, we might now move on to find out what you're up to now. I mean, you've written this book recently, but uh, I'm assuming you haven't then retired, so what's your next project that you're working on? Well, right now I am. Um, I'm going. To, I'm trying to think up what is the next book I want to write. Okay. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. No, definitely. I'm going in my mind with different proposals, but um, it's uh, nothing concrete yet that I could talk to you about. But I definitely will once I, you know, <laughs> do it. I, I'll definitely, if you're happy to call well, me again, I'd love to. Yeah. No, I, I, I think everyone I'm speaking to so far on this program, I've left the open invitation that the next time they publish, just let me know. I'm haven't had a bad interview yet, so I'm very keen to keep talking to everybody oh oh, definitely and like i say i I really love writing books you know i mean the it's a hard process you know but it's really exhilarating you know when when you sit down you come up with the idea then you try to think because i come up with some ideas but then i get shot down by myself saying well 
that may only be two pages, you know? How am I, <laughs> how am I going to make a book out of this kind of thing? Or then, okay, where am I going to go and how am I going to do the research and how am I get, how do you get funded for it? And you, yeah. you want to, don't you want to take on a project that you're going to have to abandon because it, it was just, you know, undoable. And then once you get going with the writing, it's fun to do. And then it gets fun as the book comes into publication. And then you try to do, you know, publicity. And the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be going uh, into New York and Washington, uh, part, uh, you know, post-publicity on the book, part to get some talks on terrorism. So it's been kind of busy. But uh, I, I definitely can't wait to uh, come up with the idea. And uh, if you want to give me a great idea to uh, write, I'm more than open to it. <laughs> well, I, one of the things about history is it just keeps on rolling along. So your bright idea might come up in the next few weeks or in the next 12 months. But uh, something will always be there to inspire you, I think. Yeah, and actually that's a great point about the history thing. And it's a tricky thing for authors because something that's happening right now, let's say, and you think this is a great topic for a book and there's going to be a lot of interest, something may happen and that by the time your book comes out, it's not it's a non-issue, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or it's, it's yep. a non-topic. And, and, you know, how do you kind of forecast, predict, you know, into the future what would still be topical, you know, and, and of interest and, um, you know, they can get into. But, you know, I love history and love, uh, you know, the whole subject matter. So, um, you yeah. know, hopefully I'll get going on that pretty soon. Yeah. Well, that's the fundamental problem for all PhD students. They have three to four years and possibly six years to do a topic that they hope people still care about when they finish. So, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's I right. often try and tell my students to look to, back at history because if nothing else, it's happened. And uh, you're not going to be overtaken by new events. So it's a exactly. safer place to start with. No, you're, that, that's totally correct. And, uh, you know, they're saying those who forget history are doomed to, you know, repeat it, the lessons <laughs> of history. It's so true. I mean, so much, so much terrorism has happened before in similar forms. You know, sometimes they're... they're there are new things that are occurring, but a lot are just variations of, you know, what occurred before. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, it's a fundamental rule of history that I have that uh, new generations keep reinventing the wheel. And, you know, they, had they learned their history, they might have learned from other people's mistakes, but we also don't learn from mistakes of others and we watch people... Um, do the same things again. I think a lot of people who know too much history presume people won't repeat history because they That's should right. know better, but they do. Exactly, exactly. You know, uh, you can never underestimate what people might do. <laughs> no. Well, look, I've got to say, I've had a great time talking to you today, and I really do hope we get to talk again when you do finish your next project. So, yeah, that'd be great to talk to you then, because that would mean I'm done with it, right? That's right. <laughs> we can both <laughs> do the celebrities and stuff. I hope you I can even call me before that, that if you like. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jeffrey Simon, author of Lone Wolf Terrorism, thank you very, very much. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed this. 